Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about native plants and what it takes to become a native plant nursery. Joining us from Prairie Moon Nursery is horticulture educator Caitlin O'Connor. Throughout this episode, we'll talk about the history of Prairie Moon Nursery and how they go about production and ensuring that you, the customer, can get access to wonderful native plants here in North America. This is a really interesting behind-the-scenes look at one of the greatest native plant nurseries here in the United States. But this is a message that can go out to anyone, no matter where you live. Plant native plants and understand that big things can come from very small beginnings. But before we get to that conversation, I have a message from today's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Prairie Moon Nursery, which provides over 700 species of North American native plants for gardening and restoration. That's more than any other nursery that I know of personally. Now through September 30th, you can enter promo code IDOP at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase and a free Prairie Moon Nursery sticker, a native plant insect interaction guide, and a purple prairie clover seed packet. PrairieMoon.com is an easy-to-use website that can help you find the best seeds and plants for your garden or restoration project. But if you need advice, their friendly and knowledgeable team are happy to help with any questions you might have. You get to talk to real people who love native plants just as much as you do. Best of all, seeds and plants ship directly to your door. Once again, head on over to prairiemoon.com and enter promo code IDOP at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase and some free Prairie Moon Nursery swag. All right, make sure to go check that out. And if you live in the continental United States, consider getting some native plants. But let's just jump right into today's episode. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Caitlin O'Connor. I hope you enjoy. All right, Caitlin O'Connor, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. For sure. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so it's very exciting to be with you here today. Thank you. My name is Caitlin, and I am the Education and Outreach Specialist here at Prairie Moon Nursery in Winona, Minnesota. Yes. Um, So I've been with Prairie Moon for a little over five years now. um, and I came to Prairie Moon um, because I'm actually a resident of Wiscoy Valley Community Land Co-op, where Prairie Moon was started. Um, So I was uh, going to college in the Winona area, Winona State University, um, and had gotten my degree in environmental science. And my capstone research project at Winona State uh, was with native plants. And so I got familiar with Prairie Moon at that point in time. And so, you know, after a brief stint of going to the big city and doing doing some nonprofit environmental work up there, I came back to the more rural Winona County and landed a position with Prairie Moon. So it's really great to be here. That's excellent. That's a cool story. And it's nice to kind of be back in your own home field, your home turf, really getting to be a fan of the land and really helping people in a much bigger way beyond just what's going on in the valley there. Uh, And I have to say, just as you're a fan of this show, I am a huge fan of what you're doing at Prairie Moon. And uh, it's an honor to be talking to you about that today. But I'm curious, in terms of like where plants came into the mix, were you always interested in plants or did you early on see yourself working this closely with plants or was it more just environmentalism in general? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Actually, initially when I was going to school, I thought I would be 
getting more into the arts. I was very, very artistic when I was younger. And so I thought I would maybe be a studio artist or go into art therapy. But the more I started to learn about the environmental sciences, I came to the realization that the earth is the ultimate artistic canvas. Um, And I really got into sustainability, especially humans interaction with the earth. And I, you know, I really latched onto this idea that I really truly believe that humans can have a symbiotic relationship with the planet that we live on. And that is not how we're interacting with the earth right now. There are a lot of things that human activity is doing that is causing degradation to our environment. And so I really started to get fascinated with this idea that we can be a positive force for environmental changes that benefit uh, life on earth. And the more I learned about environmental science, the more I came to realize what a foundational role that plants really play in this whole whole picture. Um, and so that's how I really started to get fascinated with botany and ecological restoration. Wow, that's a cool story. But I would think, and correct me if you know these sentiments are not quite in line, but as an artist, you know, when you find gardening, there's so many ways that gardening and environmentalism and sustainability all come together into an art form as well. I mean, growing plants is an art, arranging them. There's like no lack of the artistic expression, getting into botany, getting into plants, especially when it comes to what you do on your own landscape. Absolutely. I agree fully, you know, that aesthetics and beauty is something very inherent and One of my favorite quotes is, you know, the land ethic from Aldo Leopold. He directly talks about something that is good is also beautiful um, for the biotic community. And I really, really believe that. That's awesome. And you couldn't find yourself in a better position. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of Prairie Moon. I have been for a long time. I've been a patron of what Prairie Moon does. Many of the plants on all of the landscapes I've had any sort of control over have come through your organization. And I think many of my listeners will be very familiar with what you have going on there. But I love the history of Prairie Moon. I've only heard sort of like bits and pieces of it here and there, but it really is kind of a ground up sort of organization that started very small and has expanded in a big way, but always with this mission of of plants and, and native communities and, and being, you know, part of the landscape, right? Exactly right. I love telling the story of the history of Prairie Moon because it is such a such a peculiar story with lots of different characters <laughs> that folks may recognize. And so Prairie Moon really started um, with folks at Wiscoy Valley Community Land Cooperative. Hmm. And that is an intentional community that was organized by a bunch of folks um, who were a part of the 1970s hippie back to the land (laughs) movement. And, you know, they were just really disillusioned with society at the time and just felt like there was a lot of divisiveness. You know, there was a lot of social injustices happening. You know, it was a time that is not unlike our current time, right? Um, And they decided that they wanted to get together and try to build this community on principles of sustainability, land stewardship, social justice, and consensus decision-making. And so it was within this lively cradle that Prairie Moon was born. So initially, there was a big 
uh, a big group of guys who came up from Iowa um, <laughs> to Minnesota. They are lovingly referred to as the Sunshine Boys um, around Wiscoy. <laughs> and the Sunshine Boys were grain farmers. Uh-huh. And so when they moved to Wiscoy, um, which is an old dairy farm, they thought, well, hey, we did grain farming in Iowa. Let's do some grain farming you know, here in Minnesota. And so they did that for a couple of years. But turns out the land at Wiscoy wasn't super great for cash crop farming. Hmm. Um, it's a little marginal. It's in a valley that floods periodically, can get really wet, tractors can get stuck, things like that. Oh. Um, so after a few years of yields being lower than they had hoped for, they had started to try and think about, okay, what else could we possibly do with this land where we can live out our environmental philosophies, but also create a sustainable you know, economic income from the land that we have here. And so that's when this idea of growing native plants came to be. And it was really Alan Wade, the founder of Prairie Moon. His parents are Doug and Dot Wade. And if you're in the conservation community <laughs> in Northern Illinois, you may recognize their names. There's actually a number of uh, different locations and preserves that are named after these folks because they were a huge influence on the conservation community. And Doug Wade was actually a graduate student of Aldo Leopold. Um, wow. And of course, Aldo Leopold, he wrote the Sand County Almanac, you know, this idea of the land ethic, very famous environmentalist out of Wisconsin who worked for the University of Wisconsin. And so this idea of having native plants be commercially available was really Aldo Leopold's idea. <laughs> you know, that was that was him saying, you know, we have so much restoration work to do that if it's just some of these hardcore plant nerds out here trying <laughs> to spread the good word, like that's not enough. Yeah. Like there's not enough people doing this and we need to get it out on a grander scale. Like there needs to be production to get these plants back onto the landscape. And Doug really ran with that. And so he created what we believe to be the first native plant nursery in the Midwest, and it was called Windrift Prairie Nursery. And that was basically just a little operation out of their living room. And they did that for a few years. Um, (laughs) And then when they heard their son, Alan, and, you know, this, this group of ragtag hippies from Wiscoy community were interested in an alternative agricultural enterprise, you know, they're like, well, we can teach you how to do this native plant thing. And it really got off the ground from there. Wow. It's a fascinating history. And of course, thinking about it, in sort of the broad brushstrokes, you're like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. It's so cool to see like, we need this. This is the ethic we're going to go for. Let's just start producing. But when it comes to saying that, thinking it, and then doing it, there's a lot lot of steps in between there. And I mean, having a little bit of exposure to it and seeing other growers go through what it takes to produce seed, I mean, that's a lot of work, but it's so cool to see farmers go from, oh, we can't farm this. Let's just fall back on, say, the subsidies or, or the insurance on crop failure. Let's do something else. And having that energy be put into native plant production is pretty wild. And, you know, you hear echoes of this today, 
But in large ways, because of people like that, that we're even having this conversation because it's become such a movement. It's become such a more mainstream. I mean, I wish to see it do so more. Um, but really, I mean, setting the foundation for what we see today, it, it all goes back to, I'm guessing, what was going on in the living rooms there. Yeah, it was very visionary and very radical for the time. Um, and I think folks are really lucky to have, you know, the support and expertise of Doug and Dot during those early years. And I've heard stories where I think, you know, with like the first year or two of Prairie Moon, the total sales were about $100. And it was like, all right, yes, we're selling the seeds. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so yes, it was a very, very humble beginning. And wow. it started very small. And so how do you even start? I mean, is there much information on where they began in terms of like, how do you even choose which species you're going to pick? I mean, it'd be nice to be like, let's get them all. But, you know, some seeds store better than others. Some seeds are easier to deal with than others. And then just finding volume. I, I mean, a lot has changed in a few decades in terms of where plants are and how many are on the landscape. But what was sort of the, the motivation and goals of those early days? Or were there even? Was it just kind of let's roll with it and see what happens? Yeah, from my understanding, um, it was a little bit of what do we have access to and a little bit of what do we know that restoration plantings, you know, what is the USDA likely to purchase? What are the farm bill programs encouraging? Um, so it was a little bit of column A and a little bit of column <laughs> B from my understanding. And, you know, just based upon the location of where Prairie Moon began here in the Driftless region, has really given us an advantage, mm. um, ecologically speaking, because this is a biodiversity hotspot in the upper Midwest. It's actually only second to the Ozark region as far as biodiversity goes in the Midwest. So wow. there is three different types of big habitats, you know, the, the prairies of the Great Plains, and you have the eastern broadleaf forest, and then you have the coniferous hardwood forests of the north. And those three types of habitats converge in the Driftless hmm. region. And then, of course, we also have the Mississippi River that runs through it. Um, so we have a lot of those aquatic habitats as well. And so there is a lot of biodiversity and a lot of resources that we were able to tap into in the early days to be able to provide that type of diversity. And then for growing out in production fields, you know, we, we are in, you know, Wiscoy is in the Blufflands, which is like small mountains, tiny hills. <laughs> um, but because of that elevation change, we were able to have, you know, upland species and lowland species. Mm. There's a creek that, you know, creeks and springs that run through the property. So we were able to have species that were more emergent. Um, there's woodlands on this property as well, as well as prairies and endangered goat prairies. So that just kind of a factor of the land that was available to the community um, was a really big resource and allowed folks to grow a lot of different types of things, even right off the bat. Huh. That's really cool. And of course, I'd be remiss if you mentioned Driftless and we didn't talk about the lack of glaciers. I mean, how <laughs> unique is that for an area that far north to have not experienced glaciation? That's what I love and am so enamored with with the Driftless areas because you're looking at a landscape much older than the surrounding areas just because of this quirk of geology not touched by a mile thick ice sheet. <laughs> exactly right. And it's not that, you know, it wasn't touched by the last ice age, but from my geologic understanding, it hasn't been touched by any glaciers wow. over the last 
many ice ages. <laughs> and so, yeah, this, this location was a refugia um, for different species. And there are still ice age holdouts that you can find in these wow. uh, really, really particular niche habitats, endangered plants and an endangered snails <laughs> um, <laughs> that like you can't find anywhere else because of this very unique geology that we have here. And then that geology also plays on the hydrology, which plays on the, the botany. And, and so it, it kind of it kind of goes up the scale as to how this region is, is very unique. Wow. Yeah, it's a charmed position and it's just a charmed ecosystem in general. And there's so much to do, so much to see. Highly recommend anyone that can get themselves to the Driftless area somewhere go to it. But, you know, from a production standpoint, it's a, as we've already kind of hinted at, it's a very different ballgame to be doing this small scale in your living room and then even getting to not necessarily where you all are today, which is quite the enterprise, but scaling up from there. And so this isn't something that Prairie Moon was just doing going out into their backyard or the local woodlot or the local field and grabbing seeds. I mean, this has been sort of a community effort even beyond just the local community there, correct? So let's talk about more of the production side. How do you go from like working on a handful of things in your living room to really being a full-scale operation? Yeah, so it happened really slowly and happened over time, but there are a couple different ways that we produce seed and plants here at Prairie Moon. And so how that production happens can oftentimes be a factor of what plants are we dealing with here. And so a number of plants, you can get a really good seed crop off of very efficiently by growing plants out in the greenhouse and then lining them out in plots. Hmm. And that can be very efficient because you have a single species, it's ripe, and you just can go and hand harvest all of the seeds right off of those plants um, at the right time, and easy peasy, quick and efficient. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's one methodology. And of course, another methodology is to do full-scale restoration plantings, hmm. which is really great when you can do that. We try to do that as much as possible. However, there are production challenges when you have a really diversified restoration planting, not the least of which is that you need to be able to successfully identify the plants that are desirable to be harvested. You need to correctly ID them. You also need to be able to differentiate them from similar plants that are growing in very close proximity. You also need to be able to tell if that seed on the particular individual is ripe or not, hmm. and then wade through that entire planting. And you need to do that multiple times throughout the growing season to get different species. And then not all the seed ripens at the same time. <laughs> and so you need to kind of go out there and collect the early ripening mid-ripening and late-ripening species. Um, so it creates beautiful fields. It's wonderful ecologically, but it does take very skilled botanists to go through a planting like that and successfully harvest seed and not have it be contaminated with any other species. Wow. And then there's also species that we may be able to plant them in a production field that is diverse, but it's not as diverse as a pristine restoration planting. Sure. And a lot of times that happens because for whatever reason, that plant won't grow in isolation very well. Hmm. So for example, something like Black-eyed Susans even is something, you know, they're very easy to grow. You'd think you'd be able to grow that easy peasy. 
But growing it in isolation, we have found pretty frustrating. But (laughs) if you are able to grow it with a grass underneath it, then it's so much easier. And the plants do so much better and that plants are healthier. You get such a better seed harvest. Um, And there's other plants like that too, like like gentians. You can't really isolate a gentian. It doesn't work very well. And then, of course, things like hemoparasitic species that we're propagating, like wood betony or Indian paintbrush. And it's just it's just a factor of their biology that they are hemoparasitic or half parasites. And so just from their function of the plant, you can't really isolate them very successfully. And so it's been a lot of experimentation, a lot of trying to enhance different types of brome fields and other types of pastures that we have had access to from the agricultural land that's around southeastern Minnesota. And those are the three primary different ways (laughs) that we have produced seed. Wow. And it's cool to think about that from the production perspective, because it's not like there's a manual for every single plant and a recipe to make every single plant do its best. These these are not traditional agricultural species, and we might know a lot about them in the garden, but when it comes to scaling that up, that's a lot to digest. But I'm sure that through the years, just anyone that's worked there or helped or even, you know, run any sort of part of this operation, the amount you're learning about the natural history of these species and the questions that come up, like hearing that black-eyed Susans also do better when you put grass underneath them, then that's like, oh, why? Well, there's a jumping off point for further exploration and, and at least a conversation gets going around that. So the amount that anyone on that side of the production line gets to learn about the natural history and ecology of these species must go through the roof over time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely something that we did not learn in isolation. You know, there is lots and lots of collaboration with folks over the years, both in, you know, government agencies, universities, other folks who were, you know, really passionate about native plants and propagating native plants. Um, And it's through those conversations and through those, you know, oh, we tried this and this worked and oh, we tried this and this didn't work. But it is super funny because even like right when you think you have it figured out as to how to produce some of these species, you'll get a year and everything that you thought you knew is out the window. (laughs) And it's like, we did the exact same thing we did the past 10 years of growing the species. And now it's just not, now it's not working. (laughs) Um, So it is important to keep in mind that, you know, this is not a corn crop. This is not a bean crop. And even though you might be able to get a couple of good seed crops out of something during certain years, you know, there's all sorts of complex factors that could be based in climate. It could be based in, you know, the plant's physiology or your management techniques. You know, all of these different things create this complexity that it can be difficult to predict exactly how well harvests are going to go from year to year, which makes things really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good reminder. These are not domesticated varieties. These are true wild species and you're getting their, their genetic base is still that wild plant. And the other thing that gets me having been more of a gardener, but then going out to look at these plants in the wild, like wild quinine is one of the best examples. In my garden, it's a beast. It's so big. It stands about chest height, just produces so many flower heads. You see it in the wild, it's like a single sprig that's maybe a quarter to an eighth that size. So like performance is different. 
comparatively speaking. And some plants want to take a rest after a year or two of heavy production and not come back. I mean, it's it's a very different ball game, and you start to realize that when you deal, especially in sort of the ecological biological realm, like I have, where you get agricultural coming up against uh, ecologists, and it's it's this interesting disconnect between what you're doing uh, with like an annual that's been domesticated for maximizing production versus a wild species that's just gonna do what it wants to do. Absolutely. And that's why it's so interesting because, you know, we try to have certain characteristics of plants available for everyone to see online so that you can see, you know, this plant should be somewhere between three feet and six feet tall. And sometimes those ranges are huge. And you're like, what do you mean it can be (laughs) three feet to six feet tall? And it's like, well, yeah, because if this is in a really dry upland diversified prairie, you know, it's going to be real short Mm -hmm. because it's not got a lot of resources and it's competing with a lot of other plants. But you put that in a nice cushy garden where you've got mulch and fertilizer and there's two feet of distance between that and the next plant, that thing is going to go gangbusters. (laughs) And it's interesting that even plant morphology can Mm. look different in a wild grown plant versus a greenhouse grown plant. We get this a lot with lead plant the lead plant that we grow in the greenhouse using the nicest potting soils and, you know, feeding it with fertilizer at perfect increments and giving it water exactly when it needs it. It looks very different than what you would see a lead plant seedling look like out in the wild. And every now and again, you know, we do get savvy customers who are like, are you sure that this species is identified correctly? And we're like, we know, we know. But it is one of those things that we've literally done grow outs of things. We're thinking like, the morphology is so different. We had to have made a mistake. There must have been a species misidentification or something. And then, so we'll go all the way back to the seed source and then grow it out again. And then we'll get the exact same results. And so, yeah, it can be very interesting to take these wild plants and put them in a more domesticated situation. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. My friend Paul has lead plant growing in his garden and they look like small trees to large shrubs. And I was like, is that canessens or like, what are we looking at here? And it's the same thing. Whereas in our garden, there are a few sprigs. It looks more like what you get out of a prairie, but it's differences, like you said, in soil and microclimate and watering regimes. And like, maybe our soils backfill from the local dump or something, you know, it's, you never know what's going into, but that's part of the learning process of growing native plants. And that's something I really wish people would bring home is the variation within a species. If you're doing it right, wild species can kind of look wildly different depending on where they are and where you're getting them from. Exactly right. And we love that genetic variation. We want to embrace that genetic variation. And we are trying to do everything that we can here at Prairie Moon to maximize that. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we have taken the stand on cultivars that we're just not going to do that Mm. because we feel like it, you know, we've already lost, you know, 99% of our tall grass prairies. You know, they've been paved under, under or plowed over. And we don't want to actively contribute to that loss of biodiversity. And oftentimes cultivars through breeding or through cloning, you know, they are decreasing the genetic diversity of those populations. And so we understand that just by the very fact that we are cultivating these plants, it's impossible to not have some sort of effect. It'd be really, really interesting if there was a grad student somewhere (laughs) who would like study the 
genetic effects on populations of cultivated and wild plants, even though hey. we're like trying to maintain that. So yeah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely something to consider. And so, you know, it's something to not be worried about if you're buying native plants and you think like, this one looks a little bigger or this one's flower color is really more pink when the photo online is more purple. Mm. Yeah. And I really respect that stance that you've taken because, you know, as a business, especially a nursery business, it's easy to get scared when your bottom line and like the livelihoods of everyone that's employed by you depends on hitting that X amount of dollars each year. But you are all living proof that you don't have to necessarily go the quote unquote easy route or the more traditional route. You can do this the right way. And I love a business model that includes genetic diversity of wild populations. And something else that, you know, jumping off of this genetic diversity point that I really like about Prairie Moon and something that's always really attracted to me to your business model is this idea of sort of sourcing regional ecotypes. I mean, you can't do it all. Nothing's perfect. And there's definitely large blank spots on the map. There's always going to be. But one thing you all really seem to respect or at least care to keep track of is those seed sources. Where are these plants coming from? It's not that they're all coming from that single valley. It's coming from different growers. It's coming from different areas so that at the very least, if people want to go that extra mile, they can ask, do you have a regional ecotype for my area? And that to me is so important because the more evidence is coming in that the more locally adapted your seed can be, the better the conditions, you know, maybe a small garden setting can be, you can get away with a lot more, but especially if it's a large planting, a big prairie restoration or something on a bigger scale than just a one flower bed, that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes Prairie Moon a little bit different than a lot of other nurseries is that we are grounded in this ecological philosophy and that may not always coincide with a capitalistic philosophy, um, but that's one of the benefits of <laughs> having a company that's run by a bunch of hippie idealists is that we can make those types of choices and feel good about it. Um, and you're right, you know, um, Prairie Moon does work with other growers like, you know, Bill Handel. He was on episode 194, uh, I believe. Bill. One yes. of my favorite people in the world. Yeah, 194. I know, right? Isn't he amazing? And, best. you know, we work with a lot of other growers who are able to collect foundation seed um, from various places and propagate different ecotypes. Of course, the Prairie Moon Network is really focused in the upper Midwest. Sure. So predominantly, you're going to find various ecotypes from Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois. And sometimes we go into the Dakotas, sometimes down into Missouri, every now and again over to Indiana. But predominantly, you're going to see most of our ecotype availability in, in those states. Right. And again, I mean, you are dealing with species that are predominantly found in those areas. So it makes sense to kind of focus your efforts. But what's also fun then is you're also gaining that local knowledge. And people like Bill you can rest assured that some of the plants and seeds and genetic types that he's sent out and that people are probably growing in a lot of different places are extirpated in Illinois. They have winked out because of, you know, farmer wants an extra acre of land, which again, not judging, but that's what happens. Or the railway stopped spraying and suddenly now you have a bunch of autumn olive just completely taking over where these beautiful gentians used to be. I mean, by relying on a network like that, not only are you doing it sort of this ecologically sound sort of way, but you're also saving localized genetics, populations that would have otherwise been completely wiped out. And that, to me, just it, it helps me sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. That's really exciting. And so this network, I mean, 
how easy has it been to draw on a network of growers? I mean, is it people are just like, hey, I like what you're doing. I collect seed or I'm growing this. And and what's this whole basis on foundation seed all about? I mean, what? Are, how do those two kind of come together? What I guess we'll start with what's a foundation seed? You said that. That's a cool thing to think about. And then how do you go with the network uh, of growers to like build over the years? Is it just hearsay or is it things that you've have reached out to the public and said, we need X, Y, and Z. Can anyone help? For sure. Foundation seed is this idea that you are doing an initial seed collection on a population of wild native plants. And so that could be happening on private property. You could be getting permits to have permission to collect um, seed on public lands. And it's where you can go out and you can harvest some of that, that seed from the initial population And then you take it back to your production fields or your greenhouses where you then grow it out for further production. Mm. You know, you're just taking that, you know, like a small amount of foundation seed from this original population and then moving it into propagation to to further propagate um, and then, then sell for different projects. And so that is essentially the whole idea around foundation seed because you don't necessarily want to be going into all of these pristine wild <laughs> places or public lands and just harvesting everything you can all the time. That yeah. is not an ecologically sound method. No. And so foundation seed is, you know, taking a few seeds, you know, cutting a few from a few plants here or there to get, you know, a small initial crop and then propagating it out from there. And as far as growers go, you know, it's really been a close network of plant nerds (laughs) that have been, a lot of them have been working with Prairie Moon for years, if not decades. And, you know, a lot of it is folks that we have, you know, heard through the grapevine, you know, they're doing their own type of restoration work, or, you know, they have their own knowledge from their work as ecologists or biologists. Um, and and then we kind of create that partnership through word of mouth. Um, I don't think we've ever I don't think we've ever really advertised um, for for something like that because we really pride ourselves on having all of our species be straight species, wild type, true to name. And sometimes identification of these plants can be very tricky. Mm -hmm. You know, it can, it can be very difficult, especially if you're trying to gather seeds of these plants and you don't have a flower to go off of. (laughs) And if you're not a very skilled (laughs) botanist and you can't, you know, go off of different types of morphology of that plant, you're very likely going to be harvesting the wrong type of plant and you're going to be calling wild strawberry mock strawberry or vice versa. And, you know, you, you have to be able to guarantee that quality and that species level identification is going to be true. So it's always a task, I think, with new growers. There's always a lot of supervision um, <laughs> if we ever have a new grower that comes on because, you know, it's it's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> no, no, even with supervision. I mean, I've helped Bill and I've seen a lot of these growing operations sort of lucky enough to be given tours of what's kind of going on behind the scenes. And it is, it's extremely tough. And some days you're going out in like November and there's snow on the ground and you're going, can you, uh, can you confirm or deny what I'm grabbing here is what it is? <laughs> Absolutely. Especially with some of those late blooming species like asters, yeah. like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. 
But thinking of seeds too, I mean, it's one thing for me to go out to say a liatris in our garden and want to get some seeds off of it to give to a friend or just to propagate more. And I can deal with the pappus. I can deal with the fluff, I, you know, or grab some partridge pea seeds, put them in a bag, let them dry and explode, and then just remove the duff afterwards. But on a bigger level, seed cleaning and seed storage has to be a whole different hurdle. It's one thing to be like, yeah, we're doing this. And another thing to be like, oh, crap, we got to manage all this stuff, right? <laughs> so what's that process like once you even get seed? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that is that is quite the logistical <laughs> management task, let me tell you. Um, so yeah, the first big thing is that, you know, Prairie Moon has an intake for a lot of these seeds. And the first thing that needs to happen after you cut a seed pod or a seed head off of a plant is that it needs to be dried down. One of the big enemies of seed in, in the seed industry is mold and moisture creates mold and the mold will eat the seed. And so drying is a very important step in that storage process. Hmm. And so drying the seed happens in various ways. Some growers will send their seed already dried and partially cleaned, but sometimes it's not. And we do that here. So if you have a small crop, it could be as easy as putting that crop out in a little kid's swimming pool out in the sun, (laughs) turning it once or twice a day, just to make sure that it gets evenly dried. And it can be as simple as that. We've used, you know, large tarps in open barns. Um, And then you can get a little bit more sophisticated where you're creating big drying boxes. Like if you're familiar with harvesting of hops for beer, like a hops oast, I think they're called. Um, But it's basically like this big plywood box um, with an elevated bottom and fans. And so you're able to circulate air throughout this and you still need to, you know, you need to turn that that mass of vegetation to be sure that it's getting evenly dried and it's not like molding in any, in any (laughs) space. Um, But yeah, that is a big operation. And we actually have, you know, entire barns and pole sheds that are just dedicated to drying seed Um, really starting, you know, as early as June, some of the sedges come in super early. And so we're doing a lot of sedge harvest really early on. And then all the way, like you said, into November, um, (laughs) where some of those later species are ripening and being harvested. So that's a whole process. And then cleaning the seed after you get it is also really important. And that is something that we really pride ourselves on is having (laughs) very clean seed. Because if you buy an ounce of seed from Prairie Moon, we want you to know that you are getting an ounce of seed. You're not getting, you know, half seed and half hulls or fluff. And so there's lots of different species that you can get out on the market that are oftentimes bottom of the barrel prices. But it's like, yeah, you can get that lead plant so cheap because they didn't dehull it and it's over 50% hull and that's like just <laughs> compost basically that you're buying. Um, or like asters and goldenrods that have that really fluffy seed on there. It's like, well, that whole bag is pretty much fluff. Right. You know, that's like what is taking up a lot of that weight. And so back in the good old days, oh. cleaning seed was literally just screens. Like various screens, like you would get off of windows, you know, go out to the restore, get some old screen windows from, you know, a house they were taken down and they were literally like shaking seeds over screens and like rubbing their hands over screens and like getting various sizes. 
um, and then using fans to kind of blow off things that were lightweight, whether that was like the chafe or the hulls or the fluff. And as you can imagine, that was a very labor-intensive process. Yeah. And it was totally doable when you're a small-scale kind of ragtag nursery. But as we scaled up, hand-cleaning seed is not a viable option anymore. And they don't really make farming equipment for cleaning native seed. Like, that yeah. isn't really a thing. And so we have had to get really creative about how to retrofit machinery that is available on the market, which is designed for purposes other than what we are using. Wow. So similar, a lot of these machines are designed to do similar things, but then we have had a very creative mechanic and machinist who has retrofitted a whole bunch of our machines. And sometimes he jokes that he wishes we could have a Prairie Moon Machinery Museum <laughs> so he could go through all of these iterations of these different machines that he has, uh... has made over the years for us. But essentially, it's things like indent cylinders, hammer mills, fanning mills, wow. the clipper um, blower tables. So I don't, if like, if you're in the agricultural seed industry, maybe some of these machines sound similar <laughs> or sound familiar to you, but we've taken all of these and retrofitted them for our purposes. But essentially the idea of cleaning is very simple. You're either breaking up the plants that is with the hammer mill <laughs> and the indent cylinder then you're shaking the plants with screens and going through lots of various screen sizes. And we have, you know, whole walls in the cleaning room of all these different types of screens with, you know, various shapes and sizes and airflow. Between those three concepts, breaking things up, shaking things out and blowing a fan over things, <laughs> you know, that's essentially how we clean all of this. And I'm sure you know, if our field crew manager, Arnell, were to hear me describe it like that, he'd be like, Caitlin, it is so much more complicated than that. <laughs> and of course, I am not cleaning the seed, full disclosure. Uh, um, but in a very, very basic level, those sure. are the kinds of concepts that are used to get the seed from essentially, like you can think of it like cutting flowers for a bouquet. You're just taking a hand sigh and cutting the top of a plant off and then you're getting it from that form into a very, very clean seed. Wow. It's a process. And uh, yeah, I can imagine you do that a couple of times by hand and you are like, we need technology, please. And I just think of like, you know, eryngium, the blood, a literal blood you would have on your hands or like doing an, an iliamna. It's, it would be like dipping your hands in fiberglass. You would be so miserable for days afterward that it just wouldn't be worth it. Absolutely. And there are still species, you know, that can be problematic and that people will have reactions to. So like Eutrochium, the Joe Pie, for whatever reason, hmm. after, you know, people, you don't think of Joe Pie as a plant that people react to. But yeah. once you get the seed off and once you get those little particles floating around in the air, most of the people at Prairie Moon break out. You know, your wow. eyes will get really, really red. Your skin is very irritated. It like hurts to breathe it in like you, huh. it's just you know it's a very irritating seed once you break it down like that um and there's like one or two guys that don't have that problem with it but you oftentimes will see folks who are in the seed cleaning room with like full-on respirators face masks wow. that you might see and like folks doing 
construction um, because you don't want it to irritate your eyes. You don't want to necessarily inhale those plant particles. So it is a very, it's a loud and dirty and dusty job to do all of that seed cleaning. But yeah, with the machines, it can happen much more efficiently um, than back in the good old days when we were just shaking screens. Yeah, that's intense. Well, uh, thankful for technology in that regard. (laughs) You know, it's not also just about seeds with your organization either. What's cool is that more and more it seems like plugs and and actual living specimens are becoming part of that, which is a total different side of an operation than what you just described. Like you're only looking at half of the picture when you talk about the seed portion of what Prairie Moon is doing. Prairie Moon's also offering living plants too, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So historically, Prairie Moon has been known as a seed house. We've provided lots of the native seed for projects for DNR, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, also for some of these farm bill conservation programs like CRP and Equip. But as the gospel of native plants has expanded and more and more people are understanding how foundational native plants are to the health of our ecosystem, everyday homeowners are getting more interested in planting natives. And it is not always super straightforward as to how to get these things to grow and germinate. And not everybody has the patience to start from seed. And, you know, even though I work here at Prairie Moon, and I experiment with growing my own seeds every year. Some things I can do successfully and other things will fail spectacularly. (laughs) (laughs) And I like to think I sort of know what I'm doing, but it's just not always that straightforward. And so we've always had a very small greenhouse operation because we were growing out our own plants for production purposes, Mm. because we are able to have a lot more control over spacing and field logistics if we're able to grow out the plant plugs and then plant those plant plugs, line them out in the field for a more efficient seed harvest. But yeah, once more everyday folks were interested in growing plants, um, we started to do that more and more. And we do that in two primary ways. We grow out plants in the greenhouse and we also grow out plants outdoors in raised garden beds, almost like you would see like vegetable Hmm. gardens in raised garden beds, except instead of tomatoes, you know, we have penstemon or silene or whatever (laughs) that's growing out there. And oftentimes those plants are usually older. So we keep them in the ground for longer. They're usually one to two years old, Hmm. sometimes up to seven years old by the time we sell them, especially for some of these more conservative woodland plants. But it's some of those species that, for whatever reason, we have had difficulty germinating them and growing them in a greenhouse type of setting where it's just like, we're not really quite sure what the deal is with this, but we're just going to put it outside and (laughs) wait a little while. And then you can get it to germinate when you have patience like that and just let Mother Nature do her thing. And as much as we have learned throughout the years, there is still so much that we don't know. and Like I said, you know, you can have variable years where it was like, we did this exact same thing last year and it did not work at all this year. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
I just think of my own trials and tribulations in the garden and then again, falling back on it being a business and trying to make this work for as many people. But it's interesting to hear sort of the scaling go the opposite way of what I would expect it to go as a business is like, I would expect, oh, I sold a couple of seed packets to my friends or some people at the local farmer's market. And then we eventually got to CRP or equip programs. But it sounds like a lot of what was happening was the opposite where CRP, DOT, equip were kind of the mainstays. And now with, like you said, the gospel of native plants reaching the general public, you're getting some more of these uh, specific type orders, smaller scale, but often I want this and a little bit of this. And that's the other cool thing is your trays. You can customize to some extent the array of species that you're getting, which has helped me a ton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is one of the really cool things is that Having more and more people getting excited about native plants is people want choices and they want things to be relatively easy. You know, you can just go down to your big box store and get a bunch of petunias and then plug them in. And I think if native plants are going to be as popular as other types of beautiful landscaping plants, that it needs to be just as easy, just as accessible with just as many choices as you can find at those big box stores. And so I think that is really what we have been striving for to to meet that retail market because there's just not enough land, Mm -hmm. public lands, where if all of the work just concentrates on our public lands, it's not going to be enough. It's not. So much of the United States is in private land ownership. And I'm a huge fan of Doug Talmy. And if you have you know, read any of his books, he talks a lot about this in that we need folks of all different types from cities to suburbs to farmers. And of course, our public lands as well. But we need to have this connectivity mm-hmm. throughout our landscapes in order to create these corridors where we can have meaningful habitats for our pollinators, for our wildlife populations, to get some of these ecological services to function at a larger scale. And, you know, that happens with a lot of people doing their small part and working together. And people are going to have all sorts of different types of microclimates and habitats in their area. And, you know, not everybody is going to like the look of a wild prairie that can be kind of chaotic. And so we want to try and make it as accessible as possible and show folks that you can have a pollinator garden in full shade. You can have a beautiful native plant garden that has a more traditional aesthetic and, you know, you're just swapping out your hostas for wild geraniums, you know, and um, you can still get that nice manicured look if that's what you're going for. Totally. And we really strived to do that in our front yard is to all native to the extent that we could control, but make it look like that controlled garden. Our backyard's a completely different story because the the county can't see it. (laughs) Send us a ticket for it. But yeah, that front yard and people get really into it. They're like, oh, that's so beautiful. Guess what? They're all native. Uh, and that's really exciting to have those engaging moments. But when you think about dealing with the public, uh, you know, as, as much of a sigh as that can be sometimes, you know, you do get enthusiasm. You do get people that want to do the right thing, but don't have the background, haven't spent decades or, you know, even a few years diving into the literature and becoming a true plant nerd and all of the the ways we define that. And so what's great is that Prairie Moon makes the effort to show that it's not this prescription. There is no like single best plant 
or this only this plant benefits the bees the most. You know, you kind of make that effort to say like, hey, kind of make it your own. Don't fight the landscape or the situations you're dealing with. Work with them. And you you all provide some tools at least to help make better informed decisions for people that aren't like spending hours thinking about that one Silene they really want. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We are huge fans of encouraging people to work with what you've got. <laughs> um, oftentimes we will get questions about like, should I be amending my soil with compost? Do I need to fertilize these? You know, should I be doing X, Y, or Z? And we always encourage people to just make your observations on what is happening on the site and use those observations to put the right plant in the right place. And no matter what type of soils you have or what type of sun conditions you have, there is a native plant for you. And <laughs> you don't have to do a whole lot of research to figure it out. Um, we've done a lot of that for you and have built that into our website functions. So if you go to prairiemoon.com and you click on seeds or you click on plants, depending on how you want to start your garden, that filter tool is going to populate and you can select your sun exposure, your soil moisture. You can select what state you're in or if you want to go by USDA range, you can find plants that are best for landscaping or pollinator favorites or deer resistance. Hmm. And you can even do fun search functions like cut flowers hmm. or host plants or rock gardens or what plants are going to grow underneath pines or what plants are going to grow underneath black walnut trees. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So That's there's <laughs> all of these really cool features that are built into the website. And if you just kind of tinker around out there, um, start clicking on buttons and entering things into the search bar, you can find a lot of really great things. And of course, you know, we are always here to help. You know, when, when you call the number at Prairie Moon, you are going to get a live person like myself. And you can always ask us those questions because I know, you know, even as a millennial, sometimes it's just like, I know it's probably buried on the website somewhere, but can you just tell me? I just want someone to tell me. Right, right. <laughs> and we're more than happy to do that too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I I think a lot of what happens is people are fighting against conditions that, you know, that they're dealing with and that can lead to failures, but if you take a little bit of extra time, even if it's just taking that moment to call someone that's there to help, you know, the success will breed excitement and enthusiasm and then only more better things can come from that. Absolutely. And the one thing that's nice about native plants is that oftentimes they do really well in quote-unquote bad soil, um, <laughs> where if you are trying to grow a lot of other horticultural plants that are like kind of divas, and they would never make it. But because these native plants are adapted to these types of conditions, they don't need all of that fussing around. They don't need those amendments. You know, you don't have to worry about that type of thing as long as, you know, you're matching your sun and soil and, you know, getting some of those basic characteristics in place. And especially in poor soils, oftentimes you don't have as much weed pressure either. Yeah. And so that can also be really nice. Um, so sometimes, you know, people are discouraged because they're like, oh, gosh, I have, you know, such bad soil. It's like super sandy or like it's just infill or whatever. And it's like, it's OK. You can totally work with that. <laughs> 
Totally. And that to me is exciting because it kind of almost forces you to learn or meet some new plants, work with something different. It's not just the traditional, let's plant this milkweed here. It's what kind of milkweed? There's a bunch of different ones. And guess what? They're all amazing. Or which <laughs> liatris? There's more than just Pycnostachia out there, you know? So I really like to encourage people to do that because you're going to find something new. You're going to meet a species you didn't maybe know existed or never thought would be an interesting plant in the garden. But when you're finally there, you have it and you're watching it. If you're freeing up time too, you know, I like to work in the garden and native plants don't completely remove the working in the garden part for you. It just means you're not doing all the other nonsense that's just an uphill battle 100% of the time. But it gives you a little bit more time to just appreciate the, the effort you just put in because you get to sit back and go... Oh, look, I've never seen that butterfly before. And now this flower is here and this butterfly is visiting it. Or these bees never were here before, but suddenly we've got a pollen resource for them. So there's a lot of benefits to like having a little extra time uh, to appreciate what you've done. And another cool thing about not being prescriptive about your native plant garden is that selecting some of these different species and maybe some of the weirder plants, you know, if everybody is doing that and selecting different things and having different things in their garden, we're going to get more biodiversity on a grander scale versus if everybody just goes out and plants echinacea and rudbeckia because everybody plants echinacea and rudbeckia. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you're getting some of those other species, you know, then you're getting that diversity. One time I heard someone say the phrase, if you plant for the specialist, the generalists will come. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, it's, it's good to try and find those weird niche species that have those interesting specialist relationships with different types of insects, because, you know, the generalists are generalists, you know, they can feed on all sorts of different things. And if we can get those more niche species onto the ecosystem, you know, those species tend to be the ones that are at a higher risk of, you know, being threatened or endangered. And so if we can get some more of those, um, you know, maybe not as well-known plants on there, that can do a lot of good um, because of the biodiversity that it can support in turn. Yeah. And the other great thing too, is it's not just what Prairie Moon is offering. You have partnerships with Audubon and Xerxes and, and you build off of these these knowledge bases because you can go and say, I really like this butterfly, for instance. Okay, what's its host plant? Okay, does Prairie Moon have that? And you can have all of this sort of networking and it, it teaches you ecology, right? I mean, you're learning as it goes and it could be fun too. You don't have to be lectured about it or or demeaned on the internet. This can be like self-discovery in your own yard. It's, it's wherever you're at, you can learn something new about the ecosystem and be a better steward of it in the long run. Absolutely. There has been awesome work by organizations, some that you mentioned, and I've got to throw out the Wild Ones organization oh, is yeah. another one who we ones. just love, and they have done amazing work, and they also have some amazing online communities. If you're into social media, Native Plant Gardens of the Upper Midwest is an awesome <laughs> Facebook group. <laughs> love them, um, but they have really done a lot of great work on education and awareness, especially folks who are in urban areas, and they're trying to incorporate native plants into urban areas, which can have its own type of challenges because, you know, oftentimes when you're out in the countryside, you can do whatever you want. Yep. It doesn't really matter. Um, but there, there's a lot more restrictions. There is um, a lot, I think, more pressure for things to look a certain way or to, you know, for the plants to behave in a certain way. 
when you're dealing with an urban environment. And so those folks have been really great at educating and inspiring folks in especially in urban and suburban environments. Yeah. And I think more and more science is showing that those environments are vital refuges for many species, surprising amounts of species that, you know, a little bit goes a long way, which is really exciting. But Caitlin, the most difficult question I'm going to ask you today, someone who is surrounded, just immersed in native plants all the time, really thinking about this stuff inside and out, but also has that enthusiasm and educational background to truly appreciate what you're dealing with day in and day out. What are some of your favorites? Do you have a favorite or is there any groups that you're really excited about plant-wise these days? <laughs> oh, that is such a good question. Um, you know, honestly, I think that one of my favorite native plants is the humble common blue violet. <laughs> and one of the things that I Aww. love about the violets is that I just kind of feel like it's a rebel. And I really <laughs> like that rebellious spirit, you know, like in certain circles, people hate common violets. You know, it's a lawn weed, quote unquote. And I love its tenacious spirit, how it can take this domesticated environment. And it's just like, I don't care. I'm running all over this place. <laughs> and it's, I think it is so cute. I love it. It's a host plant for fritillary butterflies. It's edible. You can put it as like little garnishes on, you know, omelets and cakes. And I just think that is so darling. And I like to consider myself a forager. And so I always think it's an added um, fun bonus if um, a plant, you know, if, if you can eat it, that's always great. And it's just so easy to grow. And so I'm definitely one of those people who encourages violets all over my lawn. I plug them in as living mulch everywhere. Yeah. I have big aspirations of having like a violet understory in all of my herbaceous plantings <laughs> around my house. Um, so that is definitely, definitely one of my favorites. Um, but I could probably sit here all day and go through <laughs> all of the different plants that I think are really cool and why I think they're cool. But that one definitely goes to the top for me. Yeah. You're like me. Many other favorites. My other favorite. My other favorite is, yeah. Now, violets yeah. are great. <laughs> and I'll add, I'll add one to you. We just recently made a violet simple syrup, which really adds a little uh, beautiful hint of color and interesting chemistry to any summer cocktail you want to make. Yes, always a bonus when you can have a little simple syrup to a cocktail. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, and it keeps well too. It just looks so cool on the on the shelf there. This is great. But Caitlin, nice. thank you so much for giving us some insights into Prairie Moon Nursery. I mean, I can't say enough how much I love the organization. I love everything you're doing. I think you're doing a great thing for native plants and ecology in general. It's so nice to see an organization that, you know, makes money, but also does it in a sustainable, ecologically friendly way. And I can't encourage people enough to find out more and become patrons of this business. So with that in mind, where do people go looking to find out more and to hopefully become patrons and put more native plants on their landscape? Absolutely. You can find us at www.prairiemoon.com. Wonderful. And I will, of course, put up links so everyone can find that easily. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know it was kind of late after the work day we got you here, uh, but uh, this has been fascinating and fun. And I think you're doing amazing work. So keep it up. And uh, thanks for sharing it with us. Oh, thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, happy growing. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. All right. Great stuff. Very inspiring. And if you're living in the continental United States, Go take advantage of that promo. Remember to put in IDOP at checkout. 
to get 10% off your order and some great Prairie Moon swag. I can't emphasize enough that they are a company I truly believe in and support, and I'm really lucky to have them sponsoring the show today. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. If you want to continue to support the show in other ways, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants or picking up some merch and my book. You can find all of those links over in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.